All right, this is the next session uh, three, I think it is. Hermeneutics and continu continuationism. So uh, one of the charges, if you will, about the continuationist position is that it's not founded on good hermeneutics, that it's not the best explanation of the Bible itself. And that if you had good hermeneutics, if you're doing good exegesis of an in in interpretation, you would arrive at the cessationist position. <clears throat> so an example of that, of someone who believes that is John MacArthur. So I wanna quote something that he said. He said, my concern is not that John Piper doesn't seem exegeti exegetically convinced enough to advocate for the continuationist position with his own flock. So John Piper is a continuationist. And so he disagrees with MacArthur. And so MacArthur is just responding to that fact about John Piper. He says, uh, I, I, I think he's exegetically convinced, he says, but um, I was making the observation that John's commitment to the continuation of the miraculous gifts is a rare error an anomaly in his otherwise sound theology. It genuinely confuses me that such an erudite and sound thinking brothers like John Piper, Wayne Grudem and others could get this issue so wrong. So MacArthur is saying, John is a smart guy and he's very rigorous in his theology, but he's totally wrong on this. <laughs> And so I don't know why, because it, it should be obvious to him. So he, he's, he's revealing that he thinks this is that one place where John Piper is a bad theologian and he's not doing his homework. Uh, he's not being theologically sound here. So what this, this session is about is to just try and say, actually, I think that his theological conviction of continuationism is based on theologically sound doctrine. It's good, based on good hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, I see some lacking hermeneutical principles under cessationist arguments. So I'm just exposing us to this uh, in this particular one. So let's look at this, hermeneutical principles. Let's do a little bit of review about how do we arrive at doctrinal positions. First, we, we affirm the biblical inerrancy. Uh, the Bible is inerrant in the original manuscripts and the translations that we have today are a faithful representation of those originals. So our statement of faith in Sovereign Grace says, in its original manuscripts, the whole of scripture and all of its parts is inerrant without error in all that it affirms. And so Proverbs 30 verse five is one place that says that every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So we start with, and this continuationist course is no different than any of your other courses, we start with the assumption that the Bible does not affirm anything contrary to fact. This is reliable. Right down to the choices of words, the things that are in here, the things that are not in here. All of that is 100% reliable. No errors, nothing contrary to fact, and, and that the whole of it is that way. All of it is without error. Old Testament, New Testament, and the disputed passages. 
which there's a lot of under this topic. <clears throat> so there's nothing to discount regardless of what position it favors. So let's just apply that, that reality to some of the uncomfortable passages in Scripture where we might say, I believe it's inerrant, but that doesn't seem quite right. <laughs> For example, 1 Samuel 19, 23 to 24. Let me just read that text to you. The Spirit of God came upon him also, that is, Saul, before he became king. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? <laughs> so, here's a guy. He all of a sudden gets overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. And he takes off all of his clothes. And he lays on the ground and he's prophesying. <clears throat> and is that... Not normal behavior? <laughs> That's strange. We might want to say, I don't know what that is, but like I can kind of ignore that somehow. That's not important that I know that. But God thought that was important. That's part of what we need to hear in the scriptures. What we take away from it, we've got to think that through. But that actually happened. Because the Bible has no errors in it. That's not hyperbole or some kind of figure of speech or something. Saul really took off all his clothes and he prophesied all day. <laughs> and it was actually the work of the Holy Spirit is why he did it. But it makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> what are the implications? You know, Does that what prophets still do? We don't know, but we can't say that that isn't there. And another text we might want to write off and say, yeah, I don't know, is the extraordinary miracles of Paul in Acts 19, 11, and 12. Um, I'll read that one too. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So he had a piece of clothing, somehow gave it to somebody, they carried it off to somebody who was sick or had a demon, touched them with it, and they were healed. <laughs> now, do we understand how that works? <laughs> Is that supposed to happen again? Uh, it brings up all kinds of questions. What do we do with that? That seems strange. But that's God's inerrant word. This happened. That's not some wild claim. People were really getting healed by a piece of clothing from Paul. <clears throat> of inerrancy in the way that we treat different passages. If we want to say, I don't know what that is, but it's not important. Well, wait a minute. God wrote that. That's important for us to know. That's not the will of God. The other one is biblical authority. Uh, that's another important doctrine in hermeneutics. We therefore, and this is our statement of faith, we receive the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments as the perfect, infallible, and authoritative to be 
the posture of Isaiah 66 2. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We, we posture ourselves underneath this word of God and, and we say that is what will dictate and rule my life. Whatever it says, if it says go here and do this, then that's what I do. If it says believe this, then I'm going to believe that. If it says reject that, then I'm going to reject that. We, we have to humble ourselves before it and say, this, this is authoritative, this is what rules my life. And then treat everything in it that way. So I think we all probably have that, that, um, that conviction. But then there might be passages that we come to and we go, yeah, but not that one. <laughs> Let me look at two different commands. You tell me whether you think it's easy to, to obey one more, more easy than the other, okay? So first command, Mark 12, 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Does anybody have a problem with that command? <laughs> God says it. You will love me with all your heart. And we say... Yes, I, I totally agree. That's right. Now we come to another command, 1 Corinthians 14, 39. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, do we feel the same enthusiasm about that command as for the first command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul? <clears throat> At least in this topic of continuation versus cessationism, a lot of them would, a lot of people would say, "I have a reason I don't have to obey that." But that is actually God's command. That is as much of a command as "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength." So functionally, we can come to passages when they get into areas that are uncomfortable. And try and find a way out. And try and find a way to say that's not for me. But this is authoritative. So we have to either understand that passage. Maybe it's saying something other than, we, than it looks like. But we have to come under it. We have to come under it if we're going to be true to the scriptures. And then I think I'll add one more that's not here. Just sufficiency of scripture is another category. In the scriptures, we have everything that is sufficient for salvation, for sanctification. It tells us what we need to know to believe and to be saved, and then to grow on from there. It's the scripture that we have, this canon that's closed, is sufficient for that, right? And if inside that sufficient scripture, it tells us how we're supposed to believe and practice spiritual gifts, then we must do what it says, because that's part of what God wants us to do in this life. And so we can't subtract from it, and we can't add to it. We come under it, and we say, this is part of what God is telling me I need to believe and to do as one of his followers. So those are hermeneutical principles, right? So I just wanted to apply those then to a text, and I have you guys do a little bit of a project here, and we're going to look at a statement about a text, it's Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, 
and I'll read the statement, and then I want you to get together in groups, and you tell me whether or not this statement is defensible by looking at the scripture itself, okay? So let me, let me just read, first of all, the text. It's Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, and you're all going to want to turn to that. <clears throat> I came across this, this commentary when I was preaching through Hebrews, which I'm doing right now back home. But it came to Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, which is about how great a salvation that we have. And, and woe, woe to us if we neglect so great a salvation. And then the writer goes on, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Okay, now that's God's word. Now here's the commentator and what he said about it. And this commentator is a cessationist. Because of what God did in the apostolic age, we do not need signs and wonders today to prove the gospel. The writer of Hebrews speaks this, of this attestation in the past, not the present. God bore witness by those signs and wonders. We, all, we have already been given all the proof we need to believe the gospel, namely that it was given by the Lord himself and fully attested in the ministry of the apostles. So here's the exercise. Take 10 minutes. I want you to be in two groups. Just kind of split up. Maybe three, the three at the most. There's got to be at least three of you in a group. Okay? So two, maybe three groups. And you're going to answer this question. Does this text say that signs and wonders are no longer needed? Does this text say that? Does it teach that? Because that's his, that's his assertion from Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. Excuse me? The question? Okay. Does this passage, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, teach that signs and wonders are no longer needed? Does it teach that? That's the question I want you guys to talk about in a group for maybe 10 minutes, okay? Okay, guys, let's get a little bit of the fruit of your conversation here. <laughs> I don't know if your group reached any kind of a consensus or not. But remember what we're doing right now is we're evaluating somebody's claim about what this passage teaches. And that claim is that because this writer speaks in the past about signs and wonders attesting to the gospel, Mm -hmm. that therefore it's no longer needed for the present. That's his argument. And I'm asking you to evaluate, is that a good argument? That because something happened in the past, it means that it doesn't happen today. So what do you think? Okay, so you're not convinced that there's anything in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 that says there's no way miracles can happen anymore. That was in the past. It was in the past, and it can't, that means it can't be today. You're not, you're not convinced by that. 
Bearing witness. That's closer to the original Greek. It's a participle. What's past tense is, is attested. This is a participle, bearing witness, ongoing, though it happened in time back in the past. But go ahead. I think gr grammatically, in the Greek at least, what happened in the past was Jesus was the first one to tell us about this salvation. Those who heard it passed it on to us. So that all happened in the past. And while that was happening, this other thing was happening. God was bearing witness to these testimonies with signs and wonders and various gifts of the Spirit. So that was an ongoing thing that was happening while this other thing happened in the past. That's the grammatic. Okay. But your group says, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't still happen. It doesn't actually say it can't happen. So you wouldn't agree with that author's definitive, this is what it means. Okay, what does this group say? Exactly right. It doesn't say. But one thing it does not say for sure is that these things can't happen today. It just doesn't address that at all. It just says that's what happened. So to go beyond that and say, this is a text that shows we have already been given all the proof we need to believe, namely those signs and wonders in the past. And you can't make that, you can't make that claim from this passage. It doesn't teach that. It's not an argument for or against cessationism. It just says that's what God did. And we have to find out if it continues from some other source. So here's what I believe this writer did, and I, and I think this is what is common in cessationist arguments. You start with the assumption the gifts are not for today. Then you come across a passage like Hebrews 2, and you see that it says he bore witness in the past, and you say, that fits with my cessationist view. It was in the past, and now it's done. And that's what this writer is doing because he's not getting that conclusion from the text itself. He's bringing that in with a bigger assumption and reading that into the text. And that's why I have under C here recognizing our biases. We bring biases into the texts that we read. We bring our history, our baggage, our tradition, things that we heard that were right, things that we heard that were wrong. And so we come in not always 100% submissive to what it actually says. We also bring in assumptions. And sometimes those get in the way of good hermeneutics. And it's not really the scripture that's informing our decisions and beliefs. It's these bigger assumptions we've made that were never challenged. So I, I like this quote by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in England uh, great expositor, and he, he wrote a commentary on Romans, and I like this quote. He says, the danger is to approach <clears throat> controversial topics or any topic from an entrenched position or tradition with the determination to vindicate it at all costs. Prejudice is one of the greatest enemies of true exposition. So this cessationist writer picks up Hebrews, writes a commentary on it, and he reads a cessationist view into a text 
that doesn't actually address that topic one way or the other. But you, as the reader of the commentary, come across this statement and you go, oh, that proves cessationism. <laughs> but no, it doesn't. So we just have to recognize that biases get in the way. Good hermeneutics means we, if we, we challenge our biases with the scripture. We say, what does the scripture say? And can, can my belief survive the whole counsel of God or not? <laughs> and be willing to change it if you realize it was wrong. <clears throat> so I think hermeneutics, good hermeneutics, actually is in line with continuationism. Go ahead, yes, Joseph. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think what you're saying is there's a, one of the cessationist arguments is it was for a specific time in history. The, the redemptive period of time when the apostles were alive. And so the signs and wonders were consistent with that period of history. And so then we moved on from that. And so when we read Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, for example, and it's past tense, it seems consistent with that was a unique period of time not to be repeated. Right? <clears throat> so what I'm saying is that writer starts with that assumption, the one who commented on it. He starts with the assumption it was for a unique period of time. When he comes to Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, he sees that it was past. He bore witness in the past. And with that bigger worldview, he sees that and says, that fits with my worldview. It's a past tense thing. It doesn't say he is now bearing witness, but only that it was in the past. And actually, I don't disagree with having the whole counsel of God inform your understanding of any one text. It has to. That's part of good hermeneutics. But what I'm just pointing out is he's just telling us that's the conclusion I make from this passage. And we have to just assume that he's right about his worldview. But we don't know where he got that worldview we don't know what his other arguments are. All we know is what he says about Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. And he's saying that passage says that it's done. But good hermeneutics says that passage doesn't say that. It doesn't say one way or the other. So we have to go further than this passage to make a claim like that. To make sure that we understand, okay, well, why do you think that it stopped? Why is it? a redemptive period of time only when these things happen. Give me your other insight, because you're not getting it from Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. You're getting it from somewhere else. And, I, and until I know what that is, I can't, I can't agree with your description of this passage, because it doesn't say we don't need them anymore. It just says that they happened. Do you see what I'm saying about that? Yeah. All of Scripture has to inform our understanding of any one Scripture, but to just say that scripture says this when it really doesn't, that's still not good hermeneutics. You'd have to explain how that fits into the bigger picture. But for this exercise, all I'm pointing out is <clears throat> that's a text that's used to defend the cessation of the gifts. But I want you to see that it doesn't do that. There's still other things to talk about. <clears throat> But I'm trying to point out that exegetically, it doesn't say that. 
And so that if we're going to be true to Scripture and to, to understanding it rightly, we have, to be, we have to hold that person to account and say, prove that to me from somewhere else. Because I, I believe the Bible. <clears throat> Does that, that make sense? Okay. This gets to the last part, the role of experience. It's undeniable that our experiences color our interpretations, especially if they're very strong ones, positively or negatively. Um, here's, here's a quote from, it's a quote I agree with, and this is from Tom Schreiner. He's a cessationist, but he's right on this text, he's, on this quote. He says, Scripture takes priority over experience, for it is the final authority. But Scripture also must cor correlate with life, and our experiences should provoke us to re-examine afresh whether we've read the Bible rightly. None of us reads the Bible in a vacuum, and hence we must return to the Scriptures repeatedly to ensure we've read them faithfully. So what he's just saying is that you get an idea. This is what the Bible teaches. But then you walk around through life and you, you find out, does it, does it fit? Does it make sense? Is, is what I'm seeing and experiencing consistent with what I think it says? And so if there's a difference, you kind of go back to the Scripture and you say, did I read that rightly? So we go back to the authority always, but our experiences also confirm or deny what we think that it says. And so we go back and we say, oh, am, I, am I sure? Did I get that right? But experiences themselves should never dictate our theology. Only the scripture should. And so here's the, here's the thing that can happen. You can have a good experience with spiritual gifts like prophecy, tongues, healing, miracles. You can have good experiences and say, I'm a continuationist because this amazing thing happened. And that's not a good reason to be a continuationist because that's just your experience. You have to get it from the scripture. Or the opposite, you can have a really bad experience with false prophets, apostles who are taking your money, um, just wrong things happening and saying, I'm a cessationist because of that. And if that's how you become a cessationist, you also have gotten your theology from your experience and not from the scriptures. So we have to go back to the scriptures and make sure that that's where we develop our convictions. We, we use theology to inform our experiences. Like experience matters um, in Proverbs. I walked past the, to the, uh, the vineyard of a man who was a sluggard and I saw the wall was broken down and I saw weeds growing all over the place and I learned something that he who is slack, he becomes poor, you know, I forget what the exact words are, but like he learns something by walking through life and seeing what happens if you don't attend to your vineyard, it all falls apart, and that's a metaphor for life. So you always, we live in a real world where we're getting all this information, and if God is really over this world, then we're going to see his activity, and there's going to be experiences involved in that. But what do we do with our experiences? They come through our fallible mind. We don't necessarily interpret those experiences all rightly. And so we have to go back to the Word of God and say, now how should I understand what happened rightly? Is there a category for that in the Bible? Is that consistent with what it seems to say? Is it contradictory to what it says? So we do what Tom Schreiner says. Um, our experience 
should provoke us to re-examine afresh whether we've read the Bible rightly. It does matter. So, but it's just not ultimate. Ultimately, the Bible itself is our authoritative source. Oh, so let's say something happens that you can't find in the scriptures. Some kind of a strange miracle. So what are we to think about it? Like to evaluate whether it's legitimate or not? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, we have principles. Um, you know that wisdom literature falls in between law and uh, just general principles, teaching. Um, it's, it's like wisdom for life. What, what do we do in this case or that case? You know, we don't, we don't know every single case uh, of experiences that we could run into, but we have principles in the scripture. We have wisdom that we apply that's derived from our study of the Bible. So if there's something that we don't see exactly in the Bible, we bring biblical principle to bear, biblical precedent, things that are like that, and we say, how does it fit within that, that realm? And then, that, then we evaluate. So, for example, you know, in Colorado, <laughs> marijuana is legal. I don't know if you know what, what that is, okay? It's a drug. It's legal now. Anybody can have it if you're 21 and over. That, the Bible doesn't say anything about marijuana. Does that mean it doesn't have anything to say about that? Yeah, it has something to say about that. There's principle. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, I think smoking marijuana and getting high in marijuana is like being filled with wine, <laughs> drunk with wine. Like, there's a principle there. Don't let something else control you. Be controlled by God. <clears throat> so there's a principle that addresses something that's not in the Bible. And I think you look at a miracle or something strange that happens, and you go, okay, what does the Bible say about miracles? gifts of the Spirit, and so forth. Does this fit or doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So you would uh, be hesitant to say that all the gifts are available today because you don't see these things happening. You don't see the dead being raised or um, people prophesying accurately about the future. Is that what you're saying? Right, right. Well, okay, so what I think you're saying is it's continuationism is something that you would say the Bible teaches, but when you look around you, you don't see a person like Jesus walking through town and healing the sick and raising the dead and all kinds of other people who are gifted with these other extraordinary gifts. You don't see it happening. So it causes you to doubt, maybe, maybe my reading is wrong. Maybe my continuationist theology is wrong. And that's right. You should, you should go back to the scripture and say, is it right or not? But also at the same time, remember, it's still just an experience, and it may have many different explanations. Maybe we don't see these things because God is just providentially withholding it for a period of time. Maybe he doesn't want to allow us to have some of these things because our hearts aren't right, because we would receive it in the wrong way, or something like that. There are other explanations that could make sense of the fact that we don't see it, that don't have to endanger our theological understanding that we got here. I would say the absence of gifts practiced is not an argument that they can't be practiced or that we can't see them. It's just, it's just an observation. Why don't we see them? 
And that's something that there could be many answers to. But I don't think that the answer is because they stopped and the Bible says so. Because I don't think the Bible says that. alternate reasons why we don't see them? Well, on the gifts, let's say the miracles part. When we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, 14, healing, it's called gifts of healing, is Paul's term. Actually, in the Greek, it's gifts of healings. It's not a permanent residential gift that anybody ever had except Jesus. It, it's occasional gifts of healings that God gives as the Spirit decides. And I think miracles is in the same category. If the Spirit wants to, he'll give a, he'll give a miracle. If he doesn't want to, it doesn't happen. Nobody has the residential gift of miracles or healings the way a person has the gift of teaching. Because that's something that we have and we cultivate and it comes out when we use it but there are other gifts that are more occasional and they're not dependent on a residential gift. They're just God's gracious gift in that moment. Healings are like that. Not even Paul could heal anybody at will. He said, Timothy, take a long little wine for your stomach. <laughs> he left Epaphroditus sick. Um, Paul couldn't heal anybody at will. And yet he healed people pretty regularly, but he couldn't always do it. What's that? His healing? Yeah, but that only happened one time as far as I know. <laughs> Maybe that ran out after the first use. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, darn, I should have gotten in line quicker. <laughs> Good questions, though. There's tension between your experience and your theology, and that's actually why I think Tom Schreiner even admits this. He says the gifts could continue. But he says, I just think they don't. So he's that kind of cessationist. And I would just say, he hasn't been in some of the parts of the world where this is going on. And I'll show you some of the accounts. We're going to go through church history that shows that it never stopped. And then some recent uh, articles, like that one from uh, the Keener book, Miracles Today. This happens. <laughs> So anyway, Faisal, you were going to say something? Oh, no, you weren't. James. Yeah. Well, when we get into 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, I don't think that I have anything extended on just that topic, except to say when you read through that gift list, there's obviously some things that we just know and experience that are kind of residential, ongoing. Teaching is one of those gifts. Mercy would be another one, or administration. There's just some people who are just always good at it. You can just count on it that they know how to do that. But then you get to these other ones, like gifts of healings, gifts of healings, and nobody could ever just at will do it, not even the apostles. And so you have to realize, well, then there is, there, there is, there is categories here. Everything is gift. Everything is undeserved. Everything is the Holy Spirit at work and not us. But then he operates in different ways. There's some things that are more permanent and resident and other things that are sporadic and once in a while and only as he wills. And at this point, if you haven't seen miracles of certain kinds, it's probably because he doesn't will it right now.
You were going to say something, Samuel. Yeah, one of the yeah one of the maybe this is what you're saying. One of the cessationist arguments is that miracles happened in bunches. There was a bunch at this period of time. Let's say Moses. There was a bunch here with Jesus, bunch with the apostles, and then they sort of trickled out and they stopped. Yeah. Oh, R.C. Spool. Yeah. Whom I love, by the way. He's a great preacher. Was um, died three years ago, but. Let's say that that was true. I don't agree that that actually is true. You've got a record of, well, the Bible is written over 1,500 years. It covers thousands of years of history, and we only have parts of it, right? John said of Jesus' ministry, many more things happen than are written in this book. <clears throat> we don't have a record of every single thing that ever happened. But let's say, for argument's sake, they happened in bunches. The cessationist still has to prove well, how do you know that there can't be another bunch? What, what, what is the compelling argument that if they happened in bunches and then there's a period where you don't see it, that it can't happen again? Give me the compelling argument that says that cannot happen now. And so that's why we're picking away at some of those arguments so far. Um, I'm saying from Acts, that's a, that's a playbook, that's a template for how Jesus builds his church and miraculous gifts is part of his template. It's instructional. Now, how often they happen, we don't know. That's not up to us. But can they happen? That's what we're arguing for. Can they? And I'm saying so far, at least, in what we've covered, I'd say, yes, they can, because there's nothing that says they can't, and there's a lot that argues that they should. Jesus saying to all who, whoever believes in me, what the, miracle, the things I do, they will do also. So things like that argue for continuation. So there has to be some compelling argument that says that can't happen anymore. And I don't think it's a compelling argument that it happened in bunches, because you still have to say, well, why can't that happen again?